from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Well, good Monday afternoon to you. I am Sarah Perry, filling in for Tony Perkins on this, the 27th of April, 2020. Coming up on today's show, Georgia's reopening occurred today when movie theaters began welcoming customers. Limited in restaurant dining resumed and salons and barbershops opened their door. Oklahoma followed suit. They have expanded operations, as did Tennessee, where Governor Bill Lee said that the vast majority of businesses are going to be allowed to reopen when the state's stay-at-home order expires on Thursday. But with 26 million jobless claims filed, what's next for the U.S. economy as states emerge from under lockdown orders? I'll be joined by Russ Crossan, Executive Vice Chairman of the Ronald Blue Trust and author of Money Made Simple, The Key to Financial Freedom. In my second block, a series of church victories against overzealous state and local officials who'd forbidden worship services, despite congregations following appropriate CDC guidelines, has us encouraged today. I'll have Ryan Tucker, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries at Alliance Defending Freedom, on to discuss their recent court victories. At the bottom of the hour, FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, David Clausen, will join me to discuss FRC's new resources on what churches should keep in mind when reopening their doors to in-person worshipers. And in my last block, the newest numbers are out from the National Assessment of Education Progress, also known as the nation's report card, and the results will shock you. Among the failings in American history, 85% of eighth graders don't have a working knowledge of American history. What's to blame? Does distance learning during the pandemic provide opportunities for parents to right some educational wrongs? And how do we fix a broken system? I've got Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, who will join me with his thoughts. A couple of reminders before we jump into the body of today's show. Follow us on Twitter at FRCDC. Follow Tony at T. Perkins or me at Sarah P. Perry. Find our podcast on whatever podcast platform you prefer. And you can go to our podcast website page at TonyPerkins.com. Now, a reminder also to those of you who have already downloaded the Stand Firm app, be sure you have the latest update. The app has been rebuilt from the ground up, and if you don't have it already, go to the Google Play or Apple Store and search Stand Firm, or you could go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the link there. Well, the United States has now about a 1,000 cases left before we have passed the 1 million COVID positive number in the U.S. The country has virtually been on lockdown coast to coast. 26 million jobless claims have recently been filed. And we're waiting to see what the economy is going to look like when states begin to open their doors and after we've had a chance to experience life post pandemic. So joining me now to talk about it is financial expert Russ Crossum, executive vice chairman of the Ronald Blue Trust and author of Money Made Simple, The Key to Financial Freedom. Russ has also worked on FRC's board and their organization has been a trusted partner to FRC for more than two decades. Russ, so glad to have you on Washington Watch. 
Hey, Sarah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's talk a little bit first about your assessment of what the American economy is looking like. We know that we've already agreed to $2 trillion in emergency spending, followed by another $484 billion. So we know that the money is going out. Are we planning on seeing a rebound any time within this year? Well, that's a, that's a million dollar question, but I think it would be unwise to think that there aren't going to be some ongoing implications of what we've been through with, with the lockdown, as you mentioned on your earlier remarks. So I think, I think um, what we have to do is come back to what are some biblical principles that we should be applying. And if we haven't applied them, build some conviction during this time that as things do cycle back whenever that is later this year and maybe Q3, Q4 into next year, we'll, we'll do some things differently, Sarah. They are currently mulling under President Trump's direction whether or not they're going to pass a third aid package, this one specifically for underfunded and unfunded government authorities and states who are particularly struggling. So is money going out to the right areas? It's hard to say whether or not spending this amount of money is the right thing to do. Obviously, it sends us further into a deficit and it sends our stock market reeling, but are you of the mind that we're sending relief packages and spending all of this taxpayer money in the right areas? You know, I think, you know, some of the things that you looked at early on with the first with the first two trillion plus package they passed the CARE Act that you you could make a case that, that you know, some of that money shouldn't be going to people who you know make hundred and fifty thousand, you know, husband and wife. So I think I think in their attempt and their haste to really try to uh, ward off maybe even a worse economic situation. You know, obviously some of the money will end up where it shouldn't be, but I think, you know, you have to take the, the bad with the good in this because I know in many cases it did go to places that needed it, small businesses and other things. So I think, I think, Sarah, what we're learning and what we've been sharing with our clients and we share with the folks listening is that, you know, a crisis is a horrible thing to waste. So what are the learnings um, through something like this? And I think there are three or four principles that, that hopefully people will learn and um, be better equipped to handle something like this in the future. So let's talk about some of those. I know a lot of families who have been individually impacted by layoffs and furloughs, diminutions in pay. There are many of us that are being affected personally. This no longer seems like an other person problem, but there are individuals that I know, many of them, who are struggling financially to make ends meet. So here we are in the midst of a crisis worrying about our own ability to make ends meet. What are some of the principles that we can apply in a situation like this when Everything seems really uncertain. Well, I think what we got to come back to is, and the Bible is very clear that there there are people that have to meet the needs of those who don't have. So that when you don't have, they'll be able to meet your needs. Second Corinthians eight. So I think first of all, uh, the body of believers need to have their antenna up to meet some of those needs of the people around them that, like you said, have lost their job or been furloughed or whatever. And and that's what we found is the money's there, and if you have your antenna up, you can meet some of these needs. I think what we should also be doing is thinking, okay, next time I'm going to have some living expenses set aside is what we call an emergency fund. We've read a lot about that. Those that have an emergency fund, either personally or in their businesses, are going to weather this better than those who don't. And I know a lot of people don't have that, and thus they were crying to the government to, hey, we need help here. But I think, Sarah, the learning is 
that we need to, in the good times, um, be willing to skim some off and, and just put it in the bank as an emergency fund. I think what happens is we get greedy. We've had a pr- prosperous time for multiple years here, and instead of um, keeping rolling it forward and thinking it's always going to be that way, we should learn that, hey, uh, you know, the ant, you know, stored up. And so we need to do that. And I think having an emergency fund and limiting our use of debt personally and in businesses is, is the antidote uh, to this mm-hmm. and the learning. What is your thought on charitable giving during a time like this? If there are families who are really scraping to make ends meet, do we continue with our charitable giving and our tithing? What's the Bible say about that? Well, I, I would I would say, you know, first of all, in the New Testament, we don't really see the tithe mentioned. We give according to our ability. So obviously, if your ability has been cut back, you need to give something to acknowledge ownership, that God still owns it and he's still on his throne, but you may not be able to give at the level you've been giving at. Now, I'll caveat that by saying that if you have your emergency fund, maybe you're supposed to continue to give at the current level, just dip into your emergency fund. Maybe that's the faith step for, for many folks. Uh, we found that many people haven't really had to use their emergency fund, and maybe it's for such a time as this to meet needs of, of, of their churches and other ministries, you know, like FRC and others. So I think uh, generosity is something that we need to have our antenna up and look at assets to give, things like that. So I don't think we should immediately just think, okay, I'm going to quit giving. Mm-hmm. Um, we should look and say, are there other things I can do creatively? And we're finding many of our clients saying, hey, I'm glad I'm out of debt, and don't and have an emergency fund so I can continue to be generous. Now, with trillion dollars of taxpayer money at work trying to solve some of these crises and trying to patch some of the holes that the COVID pandemic has wrought in America, we're borrowing from our children's future. So what do you say to parents like me who have three of our own and we are desperately trying to get the money together to save, but here we are in the midst of a crisis going, well, there's certainly not anything I can do about it now. When we come out the other side, what are some tactics we can take to try to reverse Versus the fact that our children are going to be saddled with this debt in the future. Well, I'm really glad you asked that, Sarah. This new book I just wrote called Your Money Made Simple. The key word there is simple, and it's the key to financial freedom. This isn't complicated, uh, not necessarily easy to do, but you have to spend less than you make and do it for a long time. So mm. what we need to model for our children and, and get them to do is get on the right path. You know, direction determines destination. So I think we just have to spend less than we make. It's, it's always been this way, whether you're a business or an individual. But what happens is we tend to get ahead of ourselves. We presume on the future. We presume our income is going to always go up. We don't think we could have a downturn like this. I mean, think about it for a minute. If I had three months living expenses set aside, I could technically not get paid for three months and still not miss a beat. Hmm. So I think we, do, we need to realize when we cycle through this, all right, next time, when I have a good year like 2019, I think we got to remember too, Sarah, you know, perspective is powerful. Last year was really good. And so yeah. those very accounts that are down now were up 20% last year. So let's keep perspective. Let's be committed. Let's develop a conviction that, okay, I get it. Even though the market's strong, like in 19, I'm going to still put some money aside, begin to build an emergency fund, begin to pay off debt, including my home. And I can weather whatever happens. So that's that's what we need to do. We need to not let this crisis not teach us to apply those principles. And they sound boring. They're not easy to do, like I said, but they work. Spend less than you make, save money, have an emergency fund, pay off debt. And the last thing I would say is diversify your investments. Everything shouldn't be in, in long-term assets, which are the ones that have been getting uh, you know, the most publicity in what we see in the market. I and mean, if you have mm. bonds other things, you're not down 30%. You're probably flat. 
So you, you put your money in different buckets. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. You don't know when misfortune is going to occur. Right. So you break the bread in many parts and, and diversify. So I think diversify, pay off your debt, have an emergency fund. That's what we need to learn and, and do as we come out of this. I'm really glad that you brought up diversification because I, I know people who are white-knuckling their 401Ks right now and their IRAs, and every time they watch the Dow dip again, they think, well, all of that hard work is for naught. What's your strategy? It's In addition to diversification, are we still smarter to invest in the market in the long term? Uh, you, the key word there is long term, we, 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 and that should be 10-year money. So, so if you've got money you don't need, it's, it's when do you need the money? If you don't need it for 10 years, your retirement, your 401k, then yeah, you should stay, you should stay long term. But you also have the short term emergency fund. You should have an intermediate term, you know, two to 10 years. That's, that's not going to fluctuate so much and that'll let you sleep at night. And yeah, you should not, um, give up on the market. You should just stay the course. But what happens is people put money out in long term and they really need it short term and that's where they white knuckle it. Oh, Russ, such good information. Good information for me, too. So selfishly, I've really appreciated this segment. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for the good work of Ronald Blue Trust. This is Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Monday afternoon, April 27th. Coming up next, we've seen a lot of overzealous governments, both state level and local, try to prevent churches from worshiping in person, though they're following CDC guidelines. We have some good news today from Alliance Defending Freedom, who's seen some victories in court after raising the alarm. We'll be right back right after this on Washington Watch. Is historic masculinity lost forever? Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in a culture of gender confusion? We need men to be men, tough with compassionate strength, bent toward justice without compromise, locking arms and standing. We need to be the men God created us to be and fight for all that is right, true, and just. This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference. To find out more, go to StandCourageous.com. This conference is led by men who are seasoned, compassionate men who understand the issues of the day and will invest in you, helping you understand your role as a defender, a provider, an instructor, a battle buddy, and a chaplain so that you can have the generational influence that God has designed you to have. Learn more at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, Many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. 
In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. We can all benefit. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, your Director of Partnerships, sitting in for Tony on this Monday afternoon. TonyPerkins.com is our podcast website. And if you haven't yet downloaded, go get the Stand Firm app. You can listen to the show anytime you want, as long as you've got the app. You can find it in the Google Play Store and in the Apple Store. Well, state and local officials across the country have tried to use COVID-19 to keep churches from gathering even after they follow CDC guidelines about social distancing. For one church in Mississippi, each of its members were fined $500 for attending a drive-in service. Now, in some of these cases, an overzealous government has reversed course and the churches have prevailed. So joining me now to talk about it is Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries at Alliance Defending Freedom, Ryan Tucker. Ryan, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me. So I would like to talk a little bit about the two cases that ADF handled. And really, you all have done tremendous work in making sure that the pandemic is not an excuse to encroach upon the fundamental practice of religious liberty. And I have to tell you, for my part, this has done nothing but really shine a light on the fact that Americans are willing to give up shopping and dining and movies, but boy, don't mess with our church services. And that's refreshing for me, not only as a Christian, but as a fellow lawyer, because I understand, as do you, that these are critical days for us. So talk to me a little bit about what happened in Wake County, North Carolina. Well, absolutely. And and that same sentiment, fortunately, is shared by the Attorney General of the United States as well. You mentioned the Mississippi case and, uh, the U.S. government filed a statement of interest, which basically is a document showing support for the church there in Mississippi. But as you mentioned, it's not just Mississippi that's faced these these struggles, the, these uh, targets, if you will, of, uh, towards the church. And in Wake County, uh, North Carolina, at first there was a prohibition just on driving services at all. The county, and this is uh, in, in Raleigh, North Carolina area, the county then uh, changed course and said, okay, well, we will allow drive-in services, but there's a catch. You can't have uh, communion, uh, and as far as tithing goes, that's not permissible either. And, of course, if you think about it, just from a mere common sense perspective, you know, why can you go through the drive-in, get a taco, um, you know, have that transaction? But if you do the same thing, uh, if you were to take the elements as you were driving into a service, somehow that's not permissible. And obviously, right. it's not the a problem there, but it's unconstitutional. And so we wrote a letter to Wake County uh, expressing that exact uh, uh, point. So at this point, it appears that there has been sort of a reverse course here, and you've got some good news to share yeah. with us. Yeah, absolutely. We, we So we sent a letter uh, on Friday, and uh, later that evening, actually, the, the county itself um, uh, reverse course, if you will, opened it up to allow for this past Sunday 
uh, the elements to be to be taken, and uh, certainly there are safety protocols in place, and none of the churches we've talked to want anything other than, you know, to protect the health and safety of uh, of their congregations, but they also just want to be merely treated on an equal playing field. And so fortunately what Wake County did is allowed uh, the elements um, to, uh, to, to be um, uh, distributed as folks are driving into the service and then also allowed a mechanism for folks to uh, continue tithing if, for example, they, the, the church doesn't have an electronic medium to do so. Oh, great news. Now, you all worked on a case in Kansas as well, and that was sort of an interesting case involving a expression of spin by a government official when, in fact, you all had emerged victorious. So tell us a little bit about that case. Yeah, crazy stuff in Kansas. Kansas, um, much like a, a few states across the, the United States, Kansas um, you know, started off with um, really no prohibitions on the church, and then gradually that, that you know, got to be fewer uh, congregants in number, and then eventually got to a point where um, basically the church was was targeted for unfair treatment. You know, you could go to uh, an office building to discuss a real estate transaction, and you didn't have any numerical limitations, but if that same building were used, for example, for uh, a church service or a Bible study, all of a sudden, you know, it's a problem. It's kind of, right. So recognizing the constitutional issue there, we ended up having to file suit. Um, about eight days ago, uh, we got a temporary restraining order, which allowed that church to uh, congregate, but also with certain restrictions, commonsensical restrictions in place that the churches themselves uh, suggested, and the court agreed with that. And then um, over the weekend, the um, uh, the state recognizing their their, un- their their constitutional predicament, the fact that they were on the wrong side of this, agreed to an extension of that. Now the governor oddly came out and proclaimed victory in that scenario, which is quite a, uh, a head scratcher. But fortunately, wow. <laughs> um, you know when, when yeah, I mean, and they agreed to an extension of of the order that went in our favor, and then you know tried to to, to, to proclaim victory, which is really odd. But we came out, we corrected the record. Obviously, I'm doing so now even. And, and fortunately, uh, that church can continue. Uh, that, that injunction has continued. Now, in Kansas, the governor also said that she is going to issue a new executive order this week. So we're going to wait to see what that new executive order looks like. Supposedly, it's going to be less restrictive than the one currently. And so we'll wait and see what that looks like. And if, if we need to do something there, we'll, we stand ready to do so. I think Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City in late March was sort of the first government official to kick the first domino in terms of really cracking down on worship during the times of these pandemics. But now that we're facing an economy in states that are beginning to slowly but surely reopen their doors to certain services, do you anticipate that these types of lawsuits, the necessity for these lawsuits, will start to fade? Well, I I certainly wish that, that, that that were the case, although... I can tell you just at the beginning of this week, I, I, you know, I'm getting calls about even the unequal treatment of the churches as these states start to reopen. So, you know, how are traits, how are how are states being classified? So, I don't think it's the end, but uh, hopefully, we're we're getting towards it. 
Ryan Tucker, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries at Alliance Defending Freedom, doing continued excellent work protecting your freedom of religion. Well, coming up, we're talking about churches. So what is in-person worship going to look like post-pandemic? Well, Trump's administration's outlined some plans, but we at FRC have gone a step further. And I'll talk to David Clausen, our Director of Christian Ethics, coming up right after this. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins today. TonyPerkins.com is our podcast website. Follow Tony on Twitter at T Perkins or me at Sarah P. Perry. Well, in a pair of essays in National Affairs Spring Issue called Religious Liberty and the Common Good, William Huan argues that religious liberty serves the public interest because it's a prerequisite to and sustainer of self-governance, which is a great way to look at what is an essential practice of religious liberty. And we've talked a little bit about the legal implications, but joining me now to talk about what it will look like for churches to worship in person and together post-pandemic is David Clausen, FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. David, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to be back, Sarah. All right, we've got a pair of new resources that are going to talk a little bit about what it will look like for church leaders to put some good practices in place ahead of time. So describe to me a little bit about what these future services are going to look like. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. So, you know, a lot of Christians for the last six, seven, eight weeks have not been able to gather together and meet. You know, I know I've talked to dozens of my friends who are ready and looking forward to fellowship and meeting again. Uh, but as states begin to open up, I know President Trump and the White House Corona Task Force, they've announced a three-phase plan titled Opening Up America Again. And it really allows each governor to make the decision for their particular state. And so you're right, uh, FRC, we've uh, last Friday released two new resources of guidelines for reopening your church and then what pastors should know about the White House plan to open up America. Again, both of them are available at frc.org slash church and on tonyperkins.org. And, um, you know, the, what we're advising churches to do is to begin putting in place plans to reopen and operate their ministries according to guidance given by the CDC and uh, state and local officials. That, that's going to be key is to uh, make sure every pastor is thought, paying attention to the state and local uh, decisions and guidelines that are put in place by their states. And uh, then when we go into this document, Guidelines for Opening Your Church, we give some really practical advice uh, that pastors I would encourage to read as they consider how to safely open their church back up. 
So our first document, we discuss what it looks like to go through President Trump's three-phase plan to open up America. Again, very good summation of these three individual plans. Helps Americans, churchgoers across the country to be able to sort of follow along with what's going to happen next in terms of our response to the pandemic. So guidelines for reopening your church you've just talked about. In your estimation, what is the most important thing that church leaders can do before they're back to worshiping in person? Well, absolutely. So as as well as following the guidance from the CDC, uh, we're saying that, you know, we're really encouraging churches to encourage at-risk individuals and any uh, people in their congregation with symptoms of illness uh, to stay at home. Uh, That's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as uh, best practices that we're encouraging churches to follow, obviously we're saying we're we're encouraging them to exercise best sanitation practices, and we list several of those in this uh, document. Just a couple of them we're suggesting that perhaps uh, you would take the temperature of every person who attends the services, and if their temperature is too high, uh, they couldn't come into the building. Uh, We're we're suggesting every church use uh, hand sanitizer. They could have a dispenser. Uh, that everyone uses as soon as they walk in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, another another one, nurseries and child care facilities, uh, they're discouraged, actually, in the initial phases. However, if they are utilized, they should comply with CDC guidelines uh, that are designed specifically for child care facilities, and we link to that specific guide, guidance on our document. And uh, two, two or three others I'll mention, Sarah. One, we're saying during these initial phases, uh, the use of pew Bibles and hymnals should be discouraged. Um, mm-hmm. If they are, uh, they should be regularly sanitized according to best practices. Um, another one, we're, we're, again, these are just appropriate adjustments that you could make to make your uh, church uh, safe and sanitized. Uh, perhaps don't pass offering plates, but instead collect tithes and offerings in a central collection box near uh, the back of your of your sanctuary. Um, even during greeting times, I know my church has greeters at the front doors who normally welcome you and shake your hand. But we're saying if you you have you know greeters, uh, make sure they don't shake people's hands. Uh, you can just wave at somebody and say good morning. Um, and then another one is don't pass out literature such as church bulletins. And if you do pass out material, just make sure that your ushers are wearing gloves and that any hand, uh, material that you hand out should be sanitized. So those are just a couple. We have others listed, but just we're, you know, as these churches begin opening up, uh, we just want them to use the best practices uh, for making sure uh, that people are, are just being wise as we begin coming back together to worship. I have to tell you, one of the ones that I appreciated specifically was the fact that your your reference to the fact that in a lot of liturgies, part of the service is greeting one another with hugs. I have to tell you, I'm a hugger. Um, people, we are not okay right now. We are really missing that as part of our in-person church experience. But um, those waves, those elbow bumps, those are indications that are going to serve right now for this present time as a good substitute. But above all, Romans 13 talks about us being subject to the governing authorities. So let's listen to what the CDC says and go to frc.org slash church for more information on what we've published to help you get back to church. Well, coming up next, I can't wait to talk education with three of my own in grade school, middle school, and high school. I've got Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy at Heritage Foundation. He's going to help me break down America's abysmal report card on American history, civics, 
and geography, coming up next on Washington Watch. Where can young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of real manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of gender confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate men who understand the issues of the day and will help you understand your role as a defender, provider, instructor, battle buddy, and chaplain so that you can have the generational influence God has designed you to have. Learn more at StandCourageous.com. Recently, a bill called the Fairness for All Act was introduced to the House of Representatives. In response, FRC has a new resource, the Unfairness of the Fairness for All Act. This act attempts to find a compromise between the First Amendment's protection of religious freedom and the demands of the LGBT community. But, unfortunately, it is a poorly drafted bill that would negatively impact religious freedom, true equality, and the privacy and safety of women. Learn more at frc.org slash fairness for all. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry. Jonathan Butcher is Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. I am very excited to talk to him because we recently reviewed the nation's report card, also known as the National Assessment for Educational Progress, and that's a longitudinal study. This time about 43,000 students were assessed, and boy, oh boy, have we come up lacking. Now, in the midst of all of this, we are educating our children at home, for my part. I work and am trying to navigate the world of teaching my children, for example, math in fifth grade, even though it's been quite some time since I've used anything other than a calculator to do my math facts. So I'm very much looking forward to chatting with him. John, welcome so much to Washington Watch. Thank you. Great to be with you. Okay, so we have rather a frightening series of revelations that have just come out from the nation's report card. And some of these results are not only discouraging because of where they put us internationally, but because of what they say about our understanding, our working knowledge of our own nation. And I've got to tell you, 25% of eighth graders, just a quarter, scored at or above proficiency in geography. The other stunning number, 15% 
of the 43,000 who were surveyed performed at or above proficient in U.S. history. That's an understanding of our own nation. And these kids are headed into high school without really knowing much about the country in which they live. What do you make of this all? Well, for starters, the scores are only are, are about the same, really, from where they were when this all started in 1998. I mean, slightly above, but you know, you're talking about three points, or at least in, in the civic subject. Uh, so, you know, now that families are home with their students, this is a great opportunity for them to see what their students are learning, especially as kids continue uh, with online school, which it looks like for most states in the U.S. maybe the rest of the uh, academic year. Well, and my state in Maryland has actually only said May 15th, though I have to tell you all the economic indicators and health indicators indicate otherwise. We are one of seven states that has not fully closed its doors for the remainder of the school year, which leaves me for yet two more months to oversee and essentially instruct my kids in their learning experience. Not that I'm opposed to doing that at home, but I have to tell you, we are having to relearn and learn from scratch a lot of the material that our kids would ordinarily be getting in a classroom setting. So talk to me a little bit about some of the opportunities you think we can take out of this COVID-19 pandemic, because for my part, I am desperate for some good news. How can we actually use this to our advantage? Well, I think for one, as you learn more about what your students are being taught and within their textbooks and within their lessons, when they go back, and we hope, you know, that everyone is healthy enough and that, you know, everyone's ready to, to go back when school starts again in August and September, that then you'll be able to have kind of a knowledgeable opinion and a knowledgeable way to talk to your teachers and uh, and the administrators at your child's school about what's going on in the classroom. And, and this is important, I think, because it's one thing to be upset about what you read in the news when you hear about what's being taught in schools. It's another thing to see it at home with your child. And so this is a real opportunity for you to be ready to go back uh, when your student does. I have to tell you, this is a part of it that I have actually enjoyed because I am doing the lessons right along with my children, mostly my youngest child, uh, because he needs the most help. He's only recently turned 11, some subjects he really struggles in. I've had a chance to sit over his shoulder and watch the lessons on, for example, climate change in science. So he gets an alternative perspective from me. We can actually talk through what's factual, what's spin, where some of these pieces of information are coming from. I'm able to source all of the data. Of course, this is during the doing of my other job, which is outside the home that I blessedly get to do from home right now. But this, for me, I think, has really given me an opportunity to bounce back from that position of total ignorance. We as parents, we've got to be so aggressive in having to find out information. There seems to be almost a closed-door understanding that parents are not not to be instructed about what is actually going on in our children's schools. Do you find that to be the case? Do you find that parents are largely disenfranchised from their kids' education? Well, I think that, yes, it's true. They often don't know what's going on in the classroom. I think that you can, you know, you can tell that because of how many parents have been saying now when their children are home that, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that that is what you were being taught. I didn't realize that that's what was going on. 
um, as well as the results from not just these results of the nation's report card that we were talking about a moment ago, um, but there's a, a survey that's been conducted for many years out of the University of Pennsylvania. Called the, it's called the Annenberg Civic Survey. And uh, in that survey, it asks people what they know about U.S. government. And it turns out that uh, just under half of respondents to that survey say that they cannot name any branch of government or they can mm. only name one branch together. Wow. So, you know, that's troubling. When you've got about half of the people responding to the survey saying that they can only name one branch of government, it, it certainly puts in perspective, right, these eighth-grade results, which certainly we would hope would be improved through high school, but then this, you know, survey of adults should, you know, should give us pause. I have to tell you, this has also really impacted me in terms of these sort of the convergence of schooling at home. And it's not a true homeschool experience in that I know homeschool mothers. I know that a lot of them participate in co-ops. There are outdoor learning activities. There are field trips. It's very interactive. We are just sort of doing the patchwork of trying to restore some semblance of an educational year to our kids. But I am stunned by the numbers, the lacks of proficiency in these certain areas, which makes me even more skeptical of the information that's coming home right now from a learning at home Paradigm. I mean, we have curriculum that is bloated with minutia. It's designed for test taking and box checking and producing future governmental workers. And I know for my part, and you all at the Heritage Foundation have studied this as well. This, to me, hearkens everything that many of us were saying about the blight of Common Core on American education. We are seeing come to pass precisely the criticisms that we had and the concerns we had about this as a model of American learning. Do you think there's something to that? Well, sure, and, and I think as well at this point, so here we are, you know, some six weeks into the school closures around the country, and, and, you know, everyone has kind of settled into what has now become the situation that you've described of learning uh, online, and we're starting to see where parents and, and students were able to, and schools for that matter, were able to uh, react or navigate quickly to move to some sort of stability or continuity for students and where they weren't. And where mm-hmm. they were, I think, more flexible was uh, in public charter schools, which uh, don't, you know, usually do not have to answer to school districts. Uh, yeah. Usually they have their own school board. And so they were able to move kind of quickly and adjust and create a learning pattern right away. Uh, there's a school I was talking to in Arizona that created these little educational playlists that were one, two, three minutes long that students mm. could digest through the week to accomplish their tasks. So there are private school examples of that as well in certain states, too. So those you know, those sectors, I think, of this landscape, education landscape that we have, uh, are ones that should, you know, for everyone, deserve a closer look, uh, especially as we come out of this, because we need to be looking for solutions going forward that will allow students to, you know, have a great experience no matter what's happening around them. Well, I, I am never more a proponent for school choice than I am right now because you realize a lot of the schools, the non-traditional schools, the homeschoolers or the charter schoolers or the private schoolers got the jump on some of this stuff before the public education system was able to sort of scramble to catch up and cobble something together for the first two weeks that my children were home. They did not have anything from school, and I put together a lesson plan for them, and we took online tours of museums and art galleries, and we watched educational videos 
windows together and we went out in the yard and we identified tree species or bird species. And that, for me, has provided me an opportunity to go, you know, it's not all about data-driven test-taking, box-checking. So let me ask you this. Now that we have this convergence of this very, very sore performance in terms of international indices and what we're saying about our own performance in these areas in conjunction with having to do everything at home and getting this material from the schools and learning, using air quotes, online every day. Do you think that this is going to sort of explode the American education model? Do you anticipate that we're going to go forward with a new understanding of what works? And do you anticipate some changes in the landscape? Well, I think that's why it's important to take a closer look at these models that have adjusted so quickly when the pandemic set in. Because, look, the fact is that there are 50 million kids in the public school system in the U.S. There are a lot of kids in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, Washington, D.C., you know, these these places where uh, their neighborhoods may not be safe. Uh, They may be coming from single-parent homes. They may not have access to, you know, uh, three computers in the house or even an iPad in the house to uh, even keep up with what they're being you know, sent from the school. Right. And so to the extent that, that we, as I think thought leaders, as those who are advocates for schools, who are um, you know, really believers in the ability of every child to have a great experience, need to be talking come summer, come fall, about how we make the experience for those kids just as good as the ones who were attending private schools and charter schools and using K-12 scholarships. These are wonderful for the for these families. We and we do want more students to have access to these things. So often though, when in the past when we've had these conversations, we've run into this wall of teachers unions and other education associations yes. that say, No, no, you know, we've got to protect, you know, this system because somehow it will not, you know, it'll all fall apart. If we, uh, you know, if we allow parents to choose, and it won't. I mean, it's, it's not. It's not going to fall apart. But it is going to give more opportunity to children that desperately need it. And I think that's one of the things that we should take away from this pandemic. That you know, there are children who are going to need and still need a great experience um, after this is over. And it will be, you know, it'll be pretty clear when they go back to class. So we've actually seen a couple of viral videos and blog posts that have really picked up steam. Frustrated parents, and normally it's the mothers, who are faced with having to navigate this home or, you know, school at home paradigm. And they are so frustrated with how it's not working, both for their children and for themselves, many of us, again, working while trying to get all the teaching done, the assignments. I have snapped photos of my children's assignments and had to email them or upload them to the teachers. So we've talked a little bit about opportunities and where we can sort of grab victory from the jaws of defeat. But what do you say to the parents who, like me, find themselves very frustrated by the fact that there is so much work to be done and we're not in the best position to institute these common core goals and methods? Yeah, and that's a great question because there are a lot of people in that space right now that have kids at home and are trying to do work uh, for themselves as well as help their students keep up. I think right. uh, in talking with a virtual school teacher a couple of weeks ago, she told me that it's it's important to focus on building on what your students already know before you jump to a new concept, for one. So as you're trying to help your students grow, it is important to to start where they are, 
to build on the concepts that they were working on when they left school or walked out of school that last day in the middle of March, and then slowly build on top of that as the lessons come in. So I think for one, it's to set your expectations so that you don't feel like you can, you know, you need to jump to the next chapter of geometry or to a whole new section of history or what, what have you without trying to build on top of where they came from. So that's important because like you said, a lot of those parents are going to have to brush up on some of this material that we haven't seen in a long time. So, so I think that's a, a big first, first step. And then I think the second is make sure that you have a clear line of communication with your child's teacher. Um, mm. I know they are busy. There's no question about that. Um, and I think with the ability now to, uh, ex- to have a, an exchange online, either through email, message boards, or you know, back and forth if they're sending something to your student or directly to you, uh, it's important to keep that line of communication open. And I, you know, I think that that the, the teachers um, will, should will appreciate that, right? They'll appreciate that a parent is you know really concerned about what's going on and, and knowing what's being expected of their child. So if you and the teacher can share the same expectations, then there are fewer surprises for the student. And I have to say also, God bless the teachers who had to scramble to get these lessons together, who had to learn a new platform, who had to figure out how to be able to continue the work of teaching these students. And I'm hopeful that this is an opportunity really to move forward teaching what matters most, to hopefully allow our teachers to teach their passions going forward and not meet test-taking standards strictly not to teach to the test as many of us have warned in the past but that this would open up like you said new opportunities for learning and we'd be able to use flexibility in our our methods and our methodologies to be able to reach the kids who are just as deserving of a quality education as the rest of the students who are in public school or otherwise. Jonathan Butcher, you are Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy at Heritage Foundation. It has been tremendous talking to you. I'm encouraged talking to you. Got to have you back on the show soon enough. Appreciate all you guys are doing there. So for those of us who are listening and they have children at home, spend some time reviewing the material that's coming home. Keep a dialogue open with your children's teachers. Continue to pray because these children are in your stewardship for a period of time, but ultimately they belong to the Lord. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 